0: back to Transformation Station. And I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. We'll start in verse 5 this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you there, it'll be page 880. And I want to take a moment just to... uh, To give God praise, I mean, it was awesome to hear your voices, to join together in praise of God. And uh, I want to say a special thanks to Micah, uh, who leads our our worship team. Uh, Many of you probably don't know that Micah volunteers his time. Uh, so he receives just a very like microscopic thank you on behalf of Redemption Hill. as a church plant we can't bring, you know, five, six, seven people on staff. And so Micah uh, just volunteers his time, practices through the week, leads our band, takes his you know, service very, very seriously. And so I just want to say a public thank you to Micah. It's appropriate on it today because we have other people volunteering time like Seth, who's been part of the team for a little bit, and Naveen on the bass, first time this Sunday. So if you have worship m- music gifts and and you'd like to serve with, uh, with Micah, he would love to, to, to hear from you and, and uh, explore the possibility of you joining the uh, worship team. But I just want to say thanks to Micah. I don't do that enough. So uh, let me thank him for that. But uh, it, was a, it was a good week for me this week. And after a long but yet good week, I find myself on Friday night uh, watching the Bruins game with the sweep of Pittsburgh, wow, and uh, on hopefully the path to our second Stanley Cup in just a few years. But uh, as I was, you know, breaking for intermission, I found myself flipping through the channels and in the process, I rediscovered this show hosted by John Keones called What Would You Do? Maybe you've seen this show. Uh, the, the, The producers of the show plant actors in businesses to act in uh, socially unacceptable and even reprehensible ways. Uh, So uh, the the premise of the show is is to challenge the viewers to decide what would they do in a similar situation if they found themselves in the midst of these uh, ridiculous people. Okay, So so the first scene this week's episode uh, was at a nail salon, and this lady's talking on her cell phone, and she is just unleashing a series of derogatory and racist comments against this lady who is uh, giving her a pedicure. Okay, Does anyone see this this Friday night? And so, uh, so th- th- there are people on her right and left that are hearing everything that she's saying. And of course, the assumption is that this lady can't hear because she doesn't speak English. So, so the, the question is, what are these people on her right and left going to do? Now, thankfully, in every instance... They came to her rescue. They said, you know what? What you're saying makes me feel uncomfortable. And some of them even went as far to say, you know, you're not only offending her, you're offending me. And and it got to the point where some people were so angry that they broke out into physical sweat. And one lady was even crying. She had to get a Kleenex and started wiping her tears. And she told the lady, look, how you view this this person, it makes me cry that there are even people like you that exist in, in the world. So, so thankfully, these, these people responded appropriately. They stood up for this, this, this young lady. The second scene was, was a little lighter, okay? It was the, uh, in a coffee shop, and there was this uh, customer who um, was quite obnoxious, and every time he ordered a triple latte, okay, triple shot latte with sugar-free pomegranate syrup, half, half and half, whatever that is, okay, not, not whole... Cream, or but half, half, and half, um, whipped cream, a puff of cinnamon, with three red M&Ms on top. All right, and if that wasn't enough, he wanted it delivered at 137 degrees, and oh, by the way, make sure you don't scorch the milk. Okay. So so needless to say, people are hearing this. He is, you know, just giving the, 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 the barista a hard time all throughout. Like, Hurry up. I don't have all day. I've got to get into the city, da-da-da-da-da. And so there are people that are, you know, coming behind and tipping the barista like $20 just for having to put up with this bozo, you know. Um, they, are, they are standing up to the customer. In fact, one time he goes to the restroom, and, and one of the, the customers behind him says, Hey, if you want me to, I'll spit in his drink, you know, for you. And uh, you don't have to do it, but I will do it kind of thing. And, uh, and so the question in each scene is, what would you do? What would you do? And in the, in the gospel of Luke, as we have journeyed through it, this, this skilled physician turned historian and Christian has really written his gospel to elicit a response to the Jesus question, what would you do? hearing his teaching, seeing his actions, reckoning with his message of salvation, what would you do? And the question that the text poses today is perhaps better phrased, what will you do? What will you do when you are faced with what Jesus is going to teach us in Luke 21, verses 5 through 38, you see, Jesus is going to foretell his coming judgment on Jerusalem and he is going to call his followers to, to faithfulness and watchfulness and preparation for his coming. So in light of the return of Christ, we need to be ready for the coming judgment through watchful perseverance in God's strength. That's what Luke 21 is going to call us to respond. Now, as we've seen, as we've trekked through 21 chapters of Luke, we know that Jesus was a teacher. In fact, Jesus was the consummate teacher. He was wise. He was a prophet. He knew how to speak the words of God and make it so applicable to the the people's lives. And if we remember back to Luke chapter 2, when he was 12 years of age, Luke is the only uh, gospel writer that tells us that it says that he stayed back when his parents journeyed home and he was sitting in the temple among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So now, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised that now at the end of his life, just hours before his death, he is not on a worldwide campaign to grab everyone's attention and tell them that he is the Messiah or that has been a clear message of his teaching that the kingdom of God is at hand and the Son of Man has arrived. But what we find him in the last hours of his life is in the temple teaching. That's what verses 37 and 8 tell us in, in chapter 21. It says that every day he was teaching in the temple. Verse 38, and early in the morning, all the people came to hear him. People wanted to know what Jesus had to say. They wanted to hear his teaching on the kingdom of God. And so there are two major takeaways that I want us to to, to grab onto this morning. The first is this. It's quite simple. We need to know that judgment will come. Know that judgment will come. Jesus foretells two distinct events of judgment as we work our way through Luke 21. The first is the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. Look in verses five through seven with me. Uh, You can can read along as I uh, read them for us. It says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? We, we, in our study of Luke, we've discovered that, that this is now the third time that Jesus is foretelling the coming destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. We know from a study of the Old Testament that Solomon built his temple, that the temple that David wanted to build. God says, no, you're not going to build it, but Solomon will build it. It was built in roughly 587 B.C., the Babylonians came in and destroyed it, and actually in five, sorry, they destroyed it in 587 BC. And then around 515, uh, the temple was rebuilt, the second temple. And what happened was Herod the Great, one of the rulers there, uh, undertook this massive reconstruction project of the second temple because the second temple was, was not as great as Solomon's original temple. So Herod says, "You know what? This might be a good political move for me. Maybe this was part of his motivation." And in roughly 20 A.D., he begins this massive reconstruction project on the Second Temple, and it was it was a massive undertaking. Uh, it it was said that the temple, after it was reconstructed, could have been among the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was constructed out of beautiful white stones, massive gold plates, and beautiful ornamentation. Josephus, a a Jewish historian in that day, said that the exterior of the building lacked nothing that could astound a person. And there was a rabbinic proverb that said, he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building in his life. This temple was beautiful. It was massive. You could not come into Jerusalem and not see the, the visible beauty and, 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 and just the, the, the captivating presence of the temple. And so when people would go into the temple, they would just naturally, if you and I were there, we would be coming and I was like, look at this, it's so beautiful. It's so uh, unbelievably constructed. And Jesus says, look, and this is what Jesus does again and again and again. And again. He says, like, you are tempted just to look on the outside. The external appearances of the temple, how nice it looks. But, but what I'm more concerned about is not what the temple looks like on the outside, but what is happening on the inside of the temple. Is there true worship going on here? And the answer, as we saw a couple weeks ago, is that that was certainly not the case. We are just like this. We, we tend to see the, the brilliance of appearance on the outside and not be quite as concerned about the substance going on on the inside. Have you ever traveled to Europe and seen some of the great cathedrals of Europe? And, and I think we could even look at some of the beautiful church buildings in, in our country, even here in Boston, Trinity Church, just downtown by the Hancock Tower, beautiful building on the outside. But so many of these beautiful buildings have absolutely no substance on the inside because the gospel is not being proclaimed and Jesus is not being loved truly. This is a good message for us to hear this morning as a church because what, what, what happens with buildings is the same thing that happens with our lives. We look really good on the outside, but on the inside we're a wreck and we're not really pra- practicing faith and repentance on a daily basis. But then even on a church scale, we know that this building is for sale, right? And where we meet on Sundays is a bit up in the air. There's the possibility that whoever becomes the new owner might continue renting to us. We're going to pray for that. We're going to continue praying for that. But what happens if we're forced to move locations? What happens if we're not as a nice, you know, award-winning building as Springstep, designed by these awesome architects in Boston? Does that affect our church? Does that change who we are on the outside? Will a church building define Redemption Hill Church? I hope not, because that's not a church I want to be a part of, right? The church, we, we, we are the church. It doesn't matter if we we meet in a dump. Okay, not that we're looking for a dump to meet in, right? But it doesn't matter where we meet. It matters who we are. So let's pray that God would continue to open a door for us to meet here. But let's know that if he sovereignly positions us somewhere else in our city, hopefully nearby here in Memphis Square, if we have to, we're already exploring backup options. But just to know that, hey, the, the beat goes on because Jesus reigns and he's the king of our church. So Jesus says, you see all of this. Not one stone will be left on another. This is an example of how Jesus uses exaggeration. Some people might say, oh, the Bible's not true. Surely there were stones you know, piled up when Jerusalem fell. Of course there were. Jesus is using exaggeration to make a point, right? The temple was utterly decimated, and Jerusalem was itself. It became the stage of a horrible scene of war, and this is what we see down in verse 20. It says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let those who are out in the country not enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled." So Jesus says, look, if you're looking for signs, and there will be many, but he says, if you want to know the sign that, that, that this is about to take place, that Jerusalem is about to fall, it will be when the city is under siege by armies all around. This happened uh, just before AD 70. The Roman uh, encampment was, was around Jerusalem. The city was under siege. And, and Jesus says, when you see this begin to happen, then what you want to do is you want to flee out of the city. The city was normally a place of refuge. Normally, if if there was war going on, then people who were in the countryside would come into the city. But Jesus says, if you're into the city, get out. And if you're out of the city, don't try to get in because that is going to be the place of destruction. He says it will be so bad that those who are pregnant, women who are pregnant and in nursing infants, that it will be even worse for them because of their stage in life, because of the, maybe their lack of mobility, but, but, but basically to say that no one will be exempt from the, from the wrath of the Romans. And then he says even all of this is, is part of the, the punishment, the vengeance, the, the judgment of God for them forsaking their covenant faithfulness to God and rejecting his purposes and plans and offering, bringing them salvation. So it says that these lingering effects will be felt until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What is that? It's, it's these times. It's the times when the gospel is going forth to all nations and, and people are receiving the salvation of Christ, most of whom uh, are not of Jewish descent. But Jesus says that God still has a plan for the Jews and he will return and he will make all, th- all things right. So Jesus will move on to speak of the final judgment when he returns. But before we cover that, we need to understand what will happen before the end comes. What's going to happen before the, the, the end of the world occurs? We'll Look at verses 8 through 11 that gets us started. It says, And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven." So, so what, do we, what do we learn about these, these signs that will uh, precede the, the coming of Christ, the final judgment? And even when we see these signs, Jesus says, be careful because the end will not necessarily be immediately at once. He says, first there will be false messiahs. And we've seen this, not only, I mean, this was very prevalent in the first century. Hey, I'm the Messiah, follow me. They would try to lead little uprisings and revolts and and claim that they were the Messiah. But we even see this in our day. I mean, we think about what happened in Waco, maybe a decade or two ago, with David Koresh, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm Jesus, follow me. He says, don't be alarmed when people claim that they are a Messiah, because false messiahs will arise. Then he says there will also be social upheaval. Wars, revolutions, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. The effects of sin amongst people against one another will continue to surface. And this is the same for for God's creation. We see the effects of sin not only in our human relationships and in war and tumult, but we also see the effects of sin amongst creation. We live in a fallen world. So Jesus says there will be physical signs as well. Earthquakes, famine, pestilences, great and fearful signs in the heavens will occur. And if you're reading through this, you might say, wow. Wow. I don't, I don't want to be around for that. I, I, I don't want to see all this take place. We even see it taking place in our day, right? But, but there's comfort here. This is so good about Jesus is that he tells the truth and yet he comforts his people with, with more truth. Because what does he say in verse 9? He says, these things must take place. So in other words, when you see these things unfold before your eyes, don't be alarmed as if this isn't part of God's plan to bring the consummation of all things. But you can even take comfort and not be terrified because I told you it was going to happen before it happened. What produces deep terror and emotional distress for many can actually be a means of comfort in some, some underlying way for the Christian because we can say, you know what? Jesus told us it was going to happen, and he is coming back. Verse 12 says that it gets even more personal. Not only will be false messiahs, social upheavals, physical signs, but then also there will be persecution, and the persecution will be intense says that Christians will be handed over to government, civil authorities, and what is even worse than that is that friends and their own family members will turn them over in order for them to be persecuted. He says, some of you will be killed, and you will be hated for my name's sake. But we learn a lot about persecution in verses 12 through 19. Let me, let me read them for us. Jesus goes on to say, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it in your minds, therefore, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So what do we learn about persecution against Christians? Well, number one, persecution provides an opportunity for witness. So while we would be tempted to retreat under persecution, Jesus says when you are persecuted, it will actually provide an opportunity for you to bear witness about my name. And he says, when you are persecuted, he says, you don't have to worry about preparing a sermon and having all of your notes together. I'm going to say this and that to the king and the civil authorities. He just says, look, the spirit will give you words and wisdom to know what to say during those times. And what I love about God, you see, amidst persecution, there is promise. And the promise here is that God will give us the words to say. We can generalize and say that when persecution comes, God will carry us through the persecution, through the trial. And not only does God carry us through them, He carries us through the persecution that He might carry us to our final destination. Which leads us to the second truth about persecution. Persecution provides an opportunity to persevere with God's protection. What does verse 18 say? But not a hair of your head will perish. Now, hold on, Jesus said in verse 17 that some of you will be killed. Like, how does that square with not a hair on your head will perish? Well, Jesus, what Jesus is saying is that because you have life in me... It doesn't matter how much physical harm they may inflict upon you that you, because you have eternal life through faith in me, that at the end of it all, there can be no ultimate ultimate harm that will befall a Christian because we have been made for eternity. We will spend eternity with God. Death has lost its sting, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. So what do we have to fear if we have been made for eternity? We we see as we read the New Testament that persecutions and trial test our faith to show whether or not it is genuine and sincere. So when persecution comes, when trials come and they are sure to come, They are an opportunity for us to to live out our faith and to receive God's protection and his sustenance and his provision for us. And our call is to persevere. Look in verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus gives us the strength to persevere. Persevere. And as we persevere, he will protect us. And I love the deep irony that's going on here in the text. Okay? What is Jesus talking about? He is talking about the fall of the temple, right? The destruction of the temple. The temple that re- represented all of the religious worship of the day, much of which was not true and sincere. Jesus says, this physical temple will fall, but the spiritual temple that I am building will endure and prevail forever. Do you understand what I'm talking about? John hit this a couple weeks ago. So let me review because I think we would have got a little more amens if everyone understood that, okay? So Jesus, right? Jesus is the new temple, all right? If you go and read Exodus, there are many chapters that lay out, we need to build a tabernacle this way, this huge tent that they traveled with on the Exodus so that it might be a place of worship where they could offer up sacrifices at the altar, and this is where God would come to meet with his people at the tabernacle. And then ultimately the tabernacle turns into the temple where God's presence in, it was, was there to, to bless and to fill uh, the, the worshipers. But now in Christ... Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. John chapter 1 says that that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there means literally to tabernacle among us. So we no longer need tabernacles and temples because Jesus is the true and better temple. He is the presence of God. He is the one whom we worship and, and the one through whom we worship God. So that if we are connected to Jesus, now we are being built up as a spiritual temple in the Lord. And it is a temple that is indestructible. That's the good news of the gospel. If you are in Christ, you are truly indestructible. God will protect his people. And then then as we've already seen, persecution results from our identity in Christ. Our suffering happens because we have been united with Christ. Verse 12, he says, on account of my name, you will suffer these things. And verse 17, because of me, you will suffer these things. And some people might say, hey, I'll take Jesus, but I can do without the suffering. Right? I mean, that's, that's, our, that's our bent, right? It's like, hey, you know, Jesus, great Suffering, not so great. I'll pass on that. Well, well, how can we reject what he so willingly embraced? If God calls us to suffer for Christ, whatever degree that may be, the chances are not many of us will be martyred for our faith and, and give our lives away for the sake of the gospel, although maybe some will. But all of us may suffer to one degree or another. Jesus says, when you suffer, you should count yourself blessed. You should, you should welcome him because Peter says that the spirit of God rests on those who are suffering for the kingdom of God. So all of this, persecution providing an opportunity for witness, being persevering through God's protection, all of this happening because of our identity with Christ, our union with Christ, all of this is unfolded so vividly in the book of Acts. So you can just go read Acts and know Luke 21 stands behind it all. It's important to remember that when Jesus says this about the temple and the people ask, well, when are these things going to happen? They wanted to know when. But Jesus doesn't give them a precise date of when it will happen. He just tells them what kind of signs will accompany his coming and judgment. And I think this is really instructive for us because if we're being honest, we would all love to know when, right? When will this happen, Jesus? When, when will the day be? But Jesus is more concerned about us not knowing the date but being prepared for that day. We might be like the kids whose parents left for the weekend, right? And if they know when the parents are going to return then, you know, they'll get everything in order right at the last minute. Jesus says that would be Foolish. This is honestly one reason I see so little value in kind of trying to chart out the coming of Christ, kind of like we could count down to the return of Christ by trying to pinpoint every little event that happens in world history. And like this is going to, look, like we're going to be able to figure it out, you know what I'm saying? I mean, yes, signs happen and, and, and they're sure to come, but, but what matters most is, is that we know Jesus is returning and how we live until he comes matters. That's keeping the main thing the main thing. Or as one pastor says, keeping the main thing the plain thing. All right, That's what we want to do. We want to make it very plain. This is what it's about. Jesus is going to return. He will judge all people, and how we live until that day matters until he comes. So that then begs the question, how shall we live? Well, here's another simple exhortation. Be watchful until Christ returns. Verse 25, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So here Jesus is taking us beyond the coming judgment on Jerusalem to the coming final judgment that will be the end of the world as we know it. And and what Luke is doing here is saying that the, the coming destruction of Jerusalem really serves as a preview for the coming final judgment. He says that there will be some signs that accompany the the end of the world coming when Jesus will return. Number one, there will be cosmic signs. The heavens will be shaken. Number two, nations will be distressed and perplexed. And then three, fear will grip people all over the world because what is about to happen on a global scale? And what is about to happen? Well, we have three descriptions of the same event. While that may bring fear To some people, these three descriptions bring us much hope. Number one, the Son of Man will come on a cloud with power and great glory. Verse 27, our redemption is drawing near. Verse 28, the kingdom of God is near. These are all describing the same event, when Jesus will return. And when Jesus says he will come on a cloud with great power and glory, it evokes the imagery of Daniel 7, 13, and 14. We read them earlier. Let's read them again. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus has all authority. Jesus has all power. Jesus has all glory. Jesus is receiving a kingdom that is truly indestructible unlike Jerusalem, unlike Rome, unlike all the kingdoms of the earth that rise and fall, the kingdom that Jesus establishes will endure forever. Just as God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, we've said it 25 times through the gospel of Luke, this Davidic covenant, he is the true and better David, the true and better prophet, priest, and king who will reign forever. And the message of the Bible is that we need to know this king. We need to submit to his reign. Jesus says you can be certain of these things. This is a little parable about the fig tree. He says, you know, when, when, when we've made it through a long winter in New England and we see the leaves finally pop out on the branches and then the bushes, then we know that spring is almost here, finally arrived. Summer is around the corner and we all rejoice. It's a sign that that, that is sure to come. And Jesus says, when you see these things, know that my word will be fulfilled. It will truly come. And by the way, what is is this generation referring to when Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place? He has to be referring to the the generation that that is present when these signs begin to unfold. So he's not talking about the generation that's hearing his voice on that day, but the generation that, that is present when these signs begin to happen. So how should we respond until he comes? Let me give you two simple ways, okay? Number one, watch for Jesus by watching your life. Watchfulness is the primary exhortation here. We should have our eyes wide open, eagerly anticipating his return. We caught a glimpse of this in verse 28. Look back at verse 28. It says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Verse 26, it just told us how people will faint with fear because of all of these things taking place. That's, that's what's going to happen for non-believers in Christ. They're going to be scared out of their minds. They're going to faint with fear. But Jesus says, for those who know me, you can stand up, raise your head, and know that your redemption is drawing near. Watch out for it because it is coming. And then verse 34 and 5, look at these verses. It says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So Jesus says, watch yourself. It means to pay close attention to your life. We must pursue, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we must pursue Christ-likeness, which to pursue Christ-likeness is to pursue holiness and godliness. So he says, look, you are going to be prone, okay? 100% of us in here, including Pastor John, and Pastor other John, and other leaders in our church, right? John is a pastor. He used to be a pastor. want to confuse people not yet a pastor at Redemption Noble. Pastor Tanner, okay, just fill in the blank. 100% of us are prone to falling to temptation every single day, right? We know that temptation lurks at our door. Satan wants to trip us up and say that this thing that looks so pleasurable will actually satisfy us and fulfill us. And so Jesus says, don't let your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, with with sinful indulgences, with drunkenness, with the cares of this world. You just fill in the blank. Whatever that means for you, there is so much that wants to distract us from the things of God that, that we would then downplay the will of God in our life and deviate from his plan for us. So Jesus says, whatever it is that might stand in your way and weigh your heart down. He says, watch your life. Keep a close watch on your heart that that you might live your life for me. Pursue holiness and godliness. We can't just say, oh, that's a little harmless lie. Oh, that's fine. It was just a a small little lustful look there or or just a little greed in my life for for greater wealth and prestige will, will actually satisfy us when that's a lie every single time. These things weigh us down. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died to take on the judgment that we deserve. This coming judgment that we will all have to answer for, for the Christian, it has already been answered because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And not only that, you think about our sin, our sinfulness. The picture is that it truly does weigh us down, almost to the point of being crushing. And not only did Jesus take on the judgment that we deserve, but Jesus also died to carry the weight of our sin, the burden of our sin, the guilt of our sin, so that now those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, Romans 8.1. So we don't have to walk around with all kinds of guilt in our life as if Jesus didn't also carry that to the cross and do away with our guilt to give us a clear conscience before God. So we should watch for Jesus by watching our lives, but but how can we do this so that that day won't catch us off guard like a, a trap? Well, number two, watch for Jesus by praying for strength. If we do not understand that the Christian life is all of grace from beginning to end that we do not yet understand the gospel. Okay? It's not just grace gets us in and we are saved, but it's grace keeps us in and we are continuously being saved, being delivered from the power of our sin, being brought to that day when we can stand before God because of the strength Because of the grace that God has supplied us, not only on day one of the Christian life, but every single day of the Christian life. So then we should pray. This should change how we pray. Like, Lord, give me strength for today. God, help me to know the power that is mine in Christ that I might live my life for you today. Prayer is the mechanism by which we draw near to God. We show our need for him through prayer. Hopefully we're coming to God multiple times through the week saying, God, I'm desperate for you. I don't have it in me today to live my life for you, but you, by your spirit, have everything I need for life and godliness. And so as I depend on you and lean on you, then I can do everything that you have called me to do with my life. God's strength gives us what we need to live faithfully to the end. 1 Peter 4.7 says that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So I want you to see this, this, this reciprocal relationship between prayer and holiness. We would think, and and even Luke 21 says, you need to pray so that you can be holy, right? Pray for strength so that you can stand against these temptations that come your way. But Peter says, because the end is coming, you need to also be self-controlled. Live your life to God for the sake of your prayers. And you know this, right? You know when you're not walking with God that it seems like your prayers are, are hitting the ceiling and there's just no power there? And that, that doesn't mean that God doesn't hear us. I mean, God hears us not because of how we live each day and how holy we are. He, he hears us because of Jesus. Jesus is our intercessor. He, he is the one who mediates for us. So I never come to God perfect. I come to God perfect because of Jesus is perfect and what he's done for me. But at the same time, there is this relationship between prayer strengthening our holiness and our holiness strengthening our prayer. And we need both to be happening simultaneously because the end of all things is near and at hand. So let me put it to you very plain and simple. Every moment that passes... is a moment we are all closer to meeting Jesus, whether that comes through our death or it comes through his return. So are you ready to meet Christ? Let's live well until he comes because our redemption is drawing near. Let's pray together. Father, we ask collectively that you would strengthen us because our hearts are prone to wandering away from you, from getting caught up with the cares of the world. God, perhaps we just even need to take a moment just in our hearts right now to to confess that sin to you and find the strength and the hope that comes through Christ, his death for us, his life in us. And so, God, when, when I stand before you one day, I want to stand with, with confidence because of Christ and what he's done in my life. And so, Lord, I need your grace to help me every single day. And I know my friends need the very same thing. So, Lord, would you strengthen us by your spirit? Would you give us what we need to live for you? God, I pray for any person here that, that is fearful of that day, that would faint for fear when they see all these things happening. As Jesus returns, as they they would one day meet him, Lord, I pray that you would call them to embrace Christ as the treasure of their life, as the one who made the sacrifice for their sin, took their place on the cross, that they might have life and peace. Lord, I pray that whoever needs to do that today would just cry out to you even now. Admit their need for you. Admit their sin before you. Ask for your cleansing and forgiveness and walk in newness of life. God, thank you for how you give us new life in Christ. And we pray that as we sing this song of the great rescue that you have brought us, Lord, that we would sing with joy and anticipation that we have only begun to see the faintest glimpses of your salvation. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.